2: The Northeast will experience warmer temperatures, higher seas, and greater amounts of rain and snow than forecast only three years ago.
3: We're seeing 27% more rain falling in our worst storms. And this is really important for our infrastructure, our roads, transportation, flooding. That's according to a draft of a
2: congressionally mandated climate change report the Trump administration is set to comment on. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm Jill Kaufman, in for John Dankosky also this hour with a huge push for more renewables Massachusetts is potentially changing the region's energy landscape with a very long extension cord running down from northern New England and a one-day only peak into the McDowell artists colony in New Hampshire it's next <laughs> Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the
3: Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
2: This is Next. I'm Jill Kaufman. John Dankosky is away this week. According to a congressionally mandated report on climate that comes out every four years, a, quote, global long-term and unambiguous warming trend has continued. And many lines of evidence demonstrate that human activities, especially emissions of greenhouse gases, are primarily responsible for those climate changes in the last 70 years. Greenhouse gases, as you may know, include carbon dioxide or CO2. A few months ago, when at least one draft of this report had already surfaced, Scott Pruitt, head of the Environmental Protection Agency, told CNBC he doesn't think CO2 is a primary control knob for climate.
1: Measuring with precision uh, human activity on the climate is something very challenging to do, and there's tr- tremendous disagreement about the, the degree of impact. Uh, th- so, so no, I would not agree uh, that it's a primary contributor uh, to, the, to the global warming that we see.
4: Okay. All well, right. We
1: don't know that yet. As far as we, we need, to, we need to continue the debate and to continue the review and the analysis.
2: And just this week, President Donald Trump eliminated 2015 flood and climate regulations when he signed an executive order to streamline needed infrastructure development like roads and bridges. To hear more about the report and climate changes that are happening in New England, we're joined by Dr. Elizabeth Burkowski at the University of New Hampshire's Institute for the Study of Earth, Oceans, and Space. Welcome to Next.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So we are talking about about what is a draft climate report. Uh, Federal agencies contributed to this, as well as academics at universities who might be connected to federal agencies. And one of the bottom lines in this report is that the Northeast will experience warmer temperatures, higher seas, greater amounts of rain and snow than was forecast by federal scientists just three years ago. How much greater, if you can describe this, uh, in any types of precipitation or wind, are we talking about?
3: In terms of temperature, we have some very high confidence that in the U.S., we've already seen warming. And this has been about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit since about 1900. And we're looking at an additional 2.5 degrees over the next few decades. And that's regardless of what action we take as the U.S. or as a global community and this really is important for new england because we're already seeing these changes and it just means that we're going to continue to see them and that if we don't take action these will get worse
2: when we hear from this draft report that um that the amounts of rain and snow and and other types of of uh, extreme weather has increased since 3 years ago since another report um what are we talking about in terms of percentages or in terms of actual weather in the northeast for
3: instance Well, the largest increases in precipitation have been occurring in the northeastern U.S. when you look at the country as a whole. And essentially, we're seeing 27% more rain falling in our worst storms. So our big rainstorms are getting worse. And this is really important for our infrastructure, our roads, transportation, flooding. It has a really big economic impact, and it disrupts our communities. That is ex- that is
2: extreme. And that is is, uh, is it surprising to you uh, as a climate scientist that um, this is an increase from just a few years ago?
3: This is not surprising to me. We haven't really done enough to take action against climate change. And we have to understand that the climate system for the globe has a lot of momentum and instantaneous responses from the climate system cannot be expected. We have what's called a lot of heat coming down the pipeline. We've already seen a lot of changes in the past and these are going to continue to happen regardless of our actions until we take some bigger steps.
2: So, uh, Dr. Burkowski, according to the report, uh, much of the evidence that the scientists use says it's human activity, especially uh, in the emissions of greenhouse gases that are responsible for the observed climate changes um, in this era. And that doesn't mean just in the last three years since this report has, uh, has um, Observed, but meaning in the last in the 20th century, in the 21st century, um, this is not what the Trump administration is um, considering is is the cause of this extreme weather. And I wonder, as a scientist, if you could speak to that uh, and to what is happening at the EPA right now as we wait to hear from the Trump administration on this climate report.
3: And, and the report indeed did say that it's extremely likely that human influence has been the dominant cause of our observed warming since the mid 20th century, and it, we don't have any alternative explanation that's supported by the extent of our observational evidence. We know it's not volcanoes, we know it's not solar cycles, and we know it's not changes in stuff like Earth's orbit. Natural cycles do not explain the warming trend we've seen since the the mid-20th century. It's only human activity that explains this massive trend in temperature, precip, snowfall, and changes in sea level.
2: So putting aside the EPA for a moment and the Trump administration and how they are um, casting what has been up until now called climate change. It's now, uh, USDA has been told to use, for instance, among the agencies, weather extremes. How do you as a scientist at UNH, as a climate scientist, and other, you know, your colleagues around New England and around other academic universities, how are you speaking with students, for instance, about going forward in your research and, and addressing what's happening in New England?
3: As a research assistant professor I teach a number of classes in the department of earth sciences and I do not tip a toe around the issue of climate change what's really encouraging for me is that my students recognize this problem they know that climate change is happening and they know that it's on the onus of our generation to do something about this and what's really positive that's come out of my classes and my teaching is that these students are they're motivated they want to take action but they know it's not a weather extremes they know that that's a way of characterizing it in a way that can become more palatable for someone who's a skeptic. But they also know that skeptics are not, they don't have the the public's interest in mind. It's very important to understand that the administration is trying to sow doubt amongst the, uh, about the consensus of climate change, and we have a lot of work to do to tone that down. Um, It's really just regrettable that those that suffer most from climate change tend to be the poor. They're the ones who can't take preventative measures to prevent harm. And this is a well-known strategy that's used by special interest groups like the fossil fuel industry. And essentially all they're doing is buying time before their business model collapses.
2: The fossil fuel industry is not necessarily in... in. Um in partnership with the Trump administration though and though I do know that I understand in terms of you know big money uh, and lobbying groups uh, that exists but looking looking right at this report the extremely cold days that are being predicted the heavy rain and snow uh, or lack thereof, especially in New England, which is another factor here. Uh, predicted the the erratic weather that's predicted is going to hit, as you said, those who are not prepared for it because they don't have the finances to, but also industry here. And and this goes right to some of your your research. And I wonder if you could speak to what you've been looking at uh, recently in New England in terms of snowfall, lack thereof, and the economy. And this report is there anything new?
3: Right. Well, to be clear, high temperature records have and will continue to outpace low temperature records by a very large margin. We're not seeing any increase in the number of extreme cold days. And this is a problem for a place like New Hampshire because we rely a lot on winter tourism in our northern communities. Uh, When we have winters like 2015, 2016, where we saw a 30 percent decrease in skier visitation, that hits the people that own stores, restaurants, hotels and lodges up in our north country in New Hampshire. And when I think about what our futures are going to look like in say 20, 30, 50 years, it doesn't look great It looks like a winter that's going to be very brown that's going to lack a lot of snowfall and that's going to make it very difficult for places like ski resorts to even make snow to attract skier visitation
2: do you find that the, the academic world in general um, especially among scientists it, is it uses you know uses data, uses science um, uh, and comes up with somewhat of a consensus. Is that, is that accurate about climate change in terms of when, when you look at the academics who have worked on this draft report? Uh, it, there's consensus that the science is irrefutable?
3: Absolutely. Amongst my research community, it is well understood that humans are the leading cause of climate change in the recent times. And we also have a lot of understanding of what's happened in Earth's past when humans weren't part of the equation. And we know that what we're seeing now is completely unprecedented. We have not seen this increase in CO2 carbon dioxide in the atmosphere ever in Earth's record. Uh, we don't see this in ice cores. We don't see this in marine sediment cores. This rapid change is capture is is the cause of our warming that we've been seeing since the mid mid mid-20th century. And to say otherwise, to, to suggest that there are some natural factors that can explain this drain is just completely false.
2: I understand the technology that was used to draft this most recent climate report uh, is more sophisticated than even a few years ago. It helps uh, scientists look ahead um, at the data in different ways. And maybe you can explain some of that technology if you yourself have had your hands on it. Mm-hmm. And and is technology a way, do you think, to make the case to an administration that? is trying to reword how we talk about extreme weather?
3: I think it's important to not just reach the administration, but to reach the public and have them understand how scientists come to these conclusions about the role of human activity in climate change. And essentially what scientists use, their major tool for demonstrating this is climate models. These are very sophisticated models of how our climate system works. They include a number of equations that physically represent and mathematically represent what happens in our atmosphere when we have changes to the atmospheric composition, including the greenhouse gas concentrations. And no matter which way we parameterize or represent these equations in the models, you come to the same conclusion. And it's important to note that there's not just one single model. Within the Um, assessment report, we're looking at over 25 different models that are demonstrating the same result. And this is very consistent across the board. I think this brings a lot of, this is what contributes to our confidence. This is what contributes to our knowledge and how to also find solutions to climate change. And one of those solutions is reducing concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere.
2: There's a challenge here that one region uh, can maybe take some steps. Like New England, you know, Massachusetts has been addressing uh, CO2 as has the whole region with various um, standards, new standards put in place, more green energy. But that's one region on a on a planet. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you take um, heart as a scientist that states are uh, pushing um, back where right now the presidential administration has pulled back, away from uh, the notion that climate change is, um, is dire?
3: I find it regrettable that the Trump administration has pulled out of the Paris Agreement, which was to limit global warming to two degrees Celsius. And that Requires that countries work together to reduce greenhouse gas emissions And what I've been encouraged by is the number of cities in the US that have stepped forward to say not our city Our city is going to continue to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They're committed to being 100% renewable And they're committed to being uh, greenhouse gas neutral in terms of their emissions and to me that's where the power comes from is even when we don't have federal support we're going to continue to move forward
2: Looking at the draft report again, is there anything that you saw that was a recommended action on the part of uh, the U.S. government that the the report is recommending that you hope um, is uh, adhered to and, and otherwise?
3: What's important to understand is that this report, the Climate Science Special Report, serves as the scientific basis for the U.S. National Climate Assessment. So the Climate Science Report itself does not make any policy recommendations, and it does not have any sort of um, recommendations on mitigation or adaptation strategies. It simply lies out the scientific basis for what recommendations should come out of it.
2: Dr. Burkowski, your work uh, focuses in on New New England, climate change, the economy, many things. You mentioned you've been working on uh, the changes in mud season, which is the uh, local term for what happens around uh, end of February, March. Uh, what are you seeing changing in mud season? That, that matters. That is an indication of something that you see in science.
3: What we've seen at the end of winter into the transition into spring is that our snowpacks are melting earlier when we have a shallower snowpack in a warmer winter and the leaf out timing so when our canopies become full with leaves is not advancing at the same pace and this is leading to a lengthening of the vernal window or more colloquially known as mud season and this is a problem um this is a, not only a very important time when we're seeing important biogeochemical cycling happening within our forest ecosystems and our stream ecosystems we're also just seeing a lengthening of this period of time where there's really just a lot of mud <laughs> um it's it's not my favorite season i can't think i have anyone who thinks this is their favorite season but it's it's also um a big impact on our ski industry, our winter tourism industry, and it also lengthens the amount of time before we start seeing spring tourism as well.
2: All right, Elizabeth Burkowski, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me.
2: Elizabeth Burkowski is an assistant professor at the Institute for the Study of Earth, Oceans, and Space at the University of New Hampshire. Low-income communities and communities of color are disproportionately affected by the consequences of climate change. Think New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina. These areas suffer from poor air quality, increasing temperatures, and extreme weather. In many of those same communities, residents already live among health hazards like fuel storage units and the toxic remains that come with them. In the city of Chelsea, Massachusetts, residents bear these burdens while much of New England benefits. Reporter Shannon Dooling explains.
4: Standing along a three-mile stretch of the Chelsea Creek, Roseanne Bongiovanni, a lifelong Chelsea resident, points out a few of the notable landmarks.
0: That is the storage depot for 100% of the jet fuel that's used at Logan International Airport, 70 to 80% of the region's heating fuel, so that's all of New England, and road salt for 350 communities
4: in, uh, in the New England area. And just down the way is the New England Produce Center, which, in order to supply produce to all of New England, requires a steady stream of trucks coming in and out of the facility, leaving behind emissions. So
0: you'll see in Chelsea that we provide a lot of regional benefits, but those burdens are um, on the backs, essentially, of Chelsea residents.
4: Bon Giovanni heads up an environmental justice group called Green Roots. The organization engages community members in a city where almost 21 percent of the residents live below the poverty line and 60 percent identify as Hispanic or Latino.
2: Hi, my name is Stephanie Alvarado. I'm 17 years old and I'm a Chelsea resident.
4: Alvarado is a member of the Green Roots Eco Crew. The young people come together to learn more about the health and environmental hazards facing their city. The day we met, she and a fellow crew member were preparing for a community event to raise awareness about water quality in the creek. For Alvarado, who's grown up in Chelsea, the work she does with Green Roots is personal. So I have a lot of um, friends and family who do have asthma. Like, it just sucks watching them, like, walk for a long
2: time and then having to pause and pull out their pump and just, you know, take that medication. You know, like, it just, it's heartbreaking to see them having to go through that because of all
4: the things that we are living in. Chelsea residents are living with things like air pollutants. Remember that massive pile of road salt that's stored along the creek? It eventually ends up spread across much of New England throughout the winter months, but that stagnant pile may release dust particles in the drier months, kicking up clouds of tiny pollutants that can aggravate chronic conditions like asthma. There's also the emissions from the convoy of trucks moving that salt during the winter months. Daniel Faber is director of the Northeastern University Environmental Justice Research Collaborative, He's crunched some numbers, and according to his findings, Chelsea is one of the most environmentally overburdened places in the state. Communities that lack the political economic power to defend themselves, where residents work longer hours and they have less resources and are less educated, those are the communities that are often targeted for deciding of some of the most dangerous or ecologically hazardous facilities. In 1972, Congress passed the Coastal Zone Management Act, setting up national policies to guide coastal development. Six years later, Massachusetts created Designated Port Areas, or DPAs. These are places set aside to ensure industries dependent on waterways have a place to do business. Not every community, for example, is going to welcome the storage of jet fuel along a waterway. Establishment of DPAs concentrates these industries and guarantees access to businesses, Many coastal New England states have policies around water uses, but nothing quite the same as the DPA classification. Perhaps it's not surprising, then, that so many of these environmental hazards ended up being stored along the Chelsea Creek, one of Massachusetts' 10 designated port areas. Back at the Green Roots office, Alvarado and the Eco Crew are talking about materials they'll need for an upcoming event. Alvarado says learning more about the hazardous facilities in her community has been emotional.
5: You know, we have this creek, but we don't have access to it. It hurt me. It just kind of confirmed that Chelsea is being taken advantage of. And um, growing up in Chelsea, you know, like you could see that, but I never really knew like how true it was to that extent.
4: Alvarado says after she graduates from high school, she wants to stay in Chelsea, working to make the city a healthier place to live.
2: That's WBUR's Shannon Dooling reporting. Coming up, what a big push to bring more renewable energy to Massachusetts' means to our region. It's next.
6: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming.
2: This is Next. I'm Jill Kaufman. Massachusetts is making huge efforts to get renewable energy to its consumers. State policy is changing the energy landscape in New England, and maybe the physical landscape too. Reporter Fred Bever covers energy for Maine Public Radio, and he's been looking at how Massachusetts energy efforts affect the whole region. Fred, welcome to Next.
6: Glad to be here, Jill.
2: Could you talk about what types of energy are being used right now in New England?
6: So our mix, Jill, is dominated by natural gas, cheap Uh, relatively low polluting, although still a fossil fuel. We've got a lot of nuclear power, we've got a lot of oil, although less so than we did 15 years ago, as natural gas has displaced that as a fuel. Renewable power, we hear a lot of talk about it. It still only makes up somewhere between seven to 10% of our energy mix in New England. We're all served by the same power grid. Uh, And that needle hasn't moved a lot, since say the year 2000. There is more renewable power, but it started at a fairly low point. So even when you increase renewable power by 20%, it doesn't have that big effect on how much renewable energy is in the overall mix for New England.
2: Okay. So so Massachusetts has at this point received bids for um, energy supplies and for transmission lines that need that would get the energy to Massachusetts. Those are poles and wires and other things. How much energy are we talking about?
6: And this is renewable energy that, that Massachusetts is looking for. Uh, and it's terawatts, if you will, Jill. That's more than a megawatt, more than a gigawatt, more than a kilowatt hour. It's 9.45 terawatt hours per year. That's probably enough for about a million homes. It's maybe about 7% of the entire load in New England. So it's it's significant. Uh, and, And um, some of the, the, the players I've been talking to say it, it really could start to move the needle away from natural gas and a little more towards renewable power. I spoke recently with Sarah Burns. She's the CEO of Maine's largest utility, Central Maine Power. It's making a couple of bids to build new transmission lines, to bring hydropower down to Massachusetts and want maybe some wind power. Actually, I
0: think that's what Charlie Baker's trying to do here, make, a, make bigger plays to make a bigger difference
6: on on this. And by that, she means a bigger difference in really getting renewables to be a more significant part of the mix.
2: Fred, could you go back a bit, though, and and explain how this clean energy RFP first came together?
6: Sure. Well, so all the states for 15, 20 years have been trying to get more renewable energy into the mix. And they have these renewable energy portfolios that sort of try to ramp that up. They incentivize it. They require it. Each state handles it a little differently. Uh, Last year... Governor Charlie Baker signed legislation requiring utilities to make uh, procure big long-term contracts for renewable power, for solar energy or hydropower or wind energy or energy storage or some combination of all all of those. And that's what's driving the bids that just went in last month. It's going to drive another new procurement specifically geared to jump-starting the development of offshore wind plants. Uh, And that RFP is still out there, Jill.
2: And what proposals are are on the table now that are coming in from all over New England? Can you describe them?
6: Okay, so we, we, we need, need a big table, and it is New England-wide and even a little bit beyond. We're talking about both the, the generators, the windmills or solar plants or batteries or hydropower plants to make the energy, and then there's the poles and wires to get it to Massachusetts, right? Maine has a lot of wind power proposed because we've got a lot of good wind up here. There's solar arrays being proposed sort of dotting around New England that would get down, bring that power, and then transmission and bring that power to Massachusetts. There's a proposal to get uh, new wind power from upstate New York and some run-of-the-river hydro from over in New York. and th- That's just the beginning.
2: So, so, and it's not just in the U.S. Of course, the Canada's big dam system, Hydro Quebec, that is also in play.
6: Yes, that's right, very much so. Uh, early on in the process, I think the general belief was that power from Hydro Quebec, that's that huge dam system uh, uh, up in Quebec Province, was was Charlie Baker's target. Hi, you know, hydropower is relatively low polluting. Some of the states don't consider it fully renewable per se because. When you put in a new hydro project that can drown trees and plants and emit carbon dioxide, which is, after all, the real goal here is to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, Still, the Massachusetts RFP does allow for existing hydro. So in addition to those various projects I just mentioned, and there are many more, there's some big transmission projects being proposed to to bring that hydropower down from Quebec through uh, Vermont, through New Hampshire, through Maine, maybe even uh, uh, off the coast of Maine.
2: Okay, and then, and then there's water, but there's also wind, solar. These are also green, uh, uh, renewable energies. Do they stand a better chance of winning bids because uh, they might be less of a footprint?
6: Well, uh, not so much because of the footprints, uh, although, you know, there are costs to that. Uh, uh, but there's, there's a preference or some waiting in the, the RFP for new renewable generation. So the idea is, you know, instead of using hydropower that's already out there, the land's already been flooded, uh, you, you need the new power to really make a reduction in carbon dioxide. Uh, That Hydro-Quebec energy, it's from existing dams. They don't represent any reduction, globally speaking, in CO2 emissions. There are other projects that would carry electricity entirely from new, clean energy power plants. Uh, And Joseph Rossignoli, I I spoke to, he's the project director for both of those national grid projects. He's pitching that newness as an advantage that Bay State deciders should pay attention to.
5: That's significant
6: because contracting with... Resources that are not in service yet and would only go into service to the extent that they won the bid, that really provides meaningful
5: progress towards the global warming solution act goals.
6: And Jill, every project has its pitch that's slightly different from the next, and why they have a different advantage or another. One thing to mention, uh, while hydropower has this, this advantage of being able you can you can, you can get it any time, it's always available, so it's it's good for stability and reliability. Um, wind and solar projects, they're subject to, well, is the wind blowing, is the sun shining. That's one reason why this RFP also includes uh, the idea of big storage, big batteries, grid-scale batteries that would make power available from those wind or solar plants uh, whenever it was needed.
2: You wrote a story recently about uh, Massachusetts sort of having an extension cord uh, to northern New England getting all that energy. Do northern New Englanders feel like they're getting something from this? Do they feel like they're getting a broad deal? Well, the
6: biggest impact is when you have a big transmission line going through your your scenic resources, and that's why uh, a project in New Hampshire called the Northern Pass has maybe drawn the the, the most opposition. It would go uh, overland uh, from the Canadian border, a little bit through Vermont, down towards the White Mountains. It would actually now go underground in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, but even so... Uh, people are upset about the construction period. They're worried about what it could do to the business environment that depends on the tourism economy. Uh, Here is Kathy Aldrich Cote. She owns a pancake house near Franconia Notch uh, where there would be a lot of construction. She was at a recent hearing to protest that Northern Pass transmission project.
3: It will be devastational for us. Tourists will avoid the area and find other destinations to visit. They may not return for many years, if at all.
2: And again, what about the rest of the states? Are there going to be benefits to any of the New England states uh, surrounding Massachusetts? Whether that you know is the cost of turning on their lights? I mean, what what about how this hits home?
6: Well, so we all are in the same marketplace. Uh, basically, all the generators dump their energy into the New England-wide grid, uh, and then we all pull from it. And the contracts like these ones that Massachusetts is looking for are for the rights to pull from it, and. So the bidders will tell you that when this new renewable energy comes online and goes into the regional power grid, that that influx of energy uh, will uh, basically, by the supply of of uh, or by the by the uh, rule of supply and demand, will depress prices or act as a break on prices, uh, and so that's to everybody's advantage.
2: Fred, what do the bidders say? Those who are trying to get these contracts with Massachusetts say about. Um the energy costs that I might might see going down or, or not?
6: Well, they're suggesting that all this new supply will reduce prices for everyone or put a break on prices for everyone, whether you're in Massachusetts or uh, any other part of New England. Also, the way the contract is written, Massachusetts will pay for most or all of the new infrastructure. So their job in these uh, bids that they've made is to convince Massachusetts regulators and the utilities that will be signing these contracts that the cost of that transmission as well as uh, the cost of the energy supply itself is affordable. That to meet these clean energy goals and these carbon dioxide reduction goals that they can deliver uh, at a price that's competitive. And that's the real question that uh, Massachusetts has to answer. The the bids won't be awarded until January. And until then, the prices that are being offered are under wraps. Uh, The public, the journalists, we don't know.
2: And all this is quite a ways away in terms of of seeing seeing this contributing to the grid. So let's go back to where we began, which is right now where we started talking about natural gas a few minutes ago and how it dominates the region uh, and the costs of natural gas spikes in the winter. Um, Can these renewables counter uh, the use of natural gas and the costs?
6: The RFPs that were written actually specifically uh, addressed one question that's raised by uh, natural gas, which is in the winter in New England, it can be in short supply and the prices can really spike uh, and cost everyone a lot of money throughout New England. There have been proposals that that are are sort of on the shelf now to bring in new natural gas supply, but those haven't worked out. And so this bid uh, asks whether the... Suppliers of, of the power, of renewable power, can make sure that it's available in those cold winter days when usually one would want to the, the, grid, is, the, the grid operators used to turning on natural gas supply or nuclear supply uh, to, to make sure there's power available. The question now is can you make wind or solar or a combination of those with batteries and with hydro power be as available? as natural gas is for making sure power is there in winter.
2: Fred Bever, thank you so much. Fred Bever reports on energy and the environment for Maine Public Radio and for the New England News Collaborative. Thank you, Fred. Thanks, Jill. Biologists worldwide are saving seeds from crops and from other plants important to the ecosystem. In New England, 22% of the region's native plants are considered rare. Some of them are on the federal list of endangered species. Seed banking is one attempt to stop them from disappearing altogether, and collectors are stepping up their pace. I went to visit a seed ark in Framingham, Massachusetts. It's at the Garden in the Woods, a place as beautiful as its name. Bill Brumbach, conservation director at the New England Wildflower Society, unlocks the door to the cinder block building that houses the ark, or vault. It looks exactly like the extra freezer you might keep in your garage, except for what's inside. Brumbach raises the lid.
0: Okay, there are only rare seeds in this vault.
2: About a million rare seeds in sealed foil packets. Handwritten labels note the species' name, where and when the seeds were gathered, and if the electricity goes out.
0: Seeds in a freezer is not like meat that's going to spoil. You're talking about things that may have a shelf life, if you will, of of hundreds of years.
2: Some seeds may lose their viability, and scientists will be testing for that over time. For something so vital, the setup and security is rather unremarkable. It's not Fort Knox. It's not even Fort Collins in Colorado, where seeds for the national apple collection live. What is remarkable is that Brumbach has been collecting the seeds from rare native plants since 1982.
3: Well,
0: it was a good idea back then. and That was before climate change became more notorious.
2: Other threats to plant life have been around a long time. Deforestation, reforestation, dammed up rivers, growing cities and suburbs, even something as unassuming as a public trail. About 2,400 plants are considered native New Englanders, like Jess's milk vetch.
0: She was found in three places in the world, all along a 16-mile stretch of the Connecticut River in New Hampshire and Vermont.
2: Brumbach is also worried about Castilegia.
0: It's a paintbrush, Indian paintbrush, and it's now only found in Connecticut. It was much, much wider than that.
2: Ecologists occasionally break into the vault and use seeds to reintroduce plants to their natural habitat. Brumbach's big goal is to fill the ark with seeds from approximately 300 rare native species by 2020. That's thousands of seeds per species from multiple locations. At last count, with the help of hundreds of trained volunteers, a lot of private and some public money, they were about halfway there. Brumbach says he needs another freezer. More seeds are coming.
0: I'm Elizabeth Farnsworth, and I'm Senior Research Ecologist with New England Wildflower Society. And I am curating our collections of seed
2: from rare plant populations. Farnsworth is based in western Massachusetts. The Wildflower Society has a plant farm and its seed dehydration equipment in Wheatley. Farnsworth is looking at Go Botany, a plant identification website. She shows me a picture of a rare glauquescent sedge. And here are
0: the seeds that we're going to collect, or the fruits, I should say, that have the seeds
2: inside them. And is it at that stage right now? We certainly hope so. To me, that rare sedge looks like a clump of grass. But Farnsworth says, once I see it in the wild, I'll never not see it again. That is, if we can find it. And it's a species she's rather fond of. Back in uh, 2001, it was still known as Carex
0: flaccosperma var glaucodia. (laughs) Farnsworth gets serious
2: when she tells me, I can't tell you where we're going. Scientists are very protective of rare plants. They don't want civilian Johnny Appleseeds over-collecting and planting in the wrong spots.
0: All right, shall we start walking?
2: (laughs) It's raining. It's a beautiful walk. And we walk and walk and double back. We go off trail, up a steep incline.
0: As we head a little bit deeper uh, into the forest, I expect to see actually much of these herbaceous plants sort of drop out. We'll be looking for these guys. Fingers crossed,
2: Farnsworth says as she walks on.
0: Um, And I'm looking for that characteristic sort of blue-greenish color. There's a little opening in
2: the tree cover, and Farnsworth is sure this is where she last found the sedge.
0: I, I will say I'm a bit puzzled. Just may not be my lucky day here.
2: In the next few minutes, she sees several other varieties, but not the rare glauquescent. Farnsworth stops, and she picks something up and looks at it for a while with the magnifying lens she wears around her neck.
0: I believe it is our sedge, even though it doesn't look particularly glaucous in the uh, pouring rain. They're so past at this point; they're actually very overmature, shall we say. So I may have gotten out here just a little too late but at least we know that there's still (laughs) one or two of these guys. a A little clump over there.
2: While the survival of humankind doesn't depend on finding this one rare sedge today, Farnsworth says the entire ecosystem is at risk.
0: So you lose a plant, you lose everything that depends upon it. And if you lose enough plants you lose many of the important services that they provide
2: to us as humans. Like oxygen and medicine and, of course, food. We're hungry, and Farnsworth happens to find some tiny blueberries on a bush right near where she found the sedge. The seed arc may never be fully needed, but Farnsworth says the climate science is irrefutable. It could make an ecologist, among others, not want to get out of bed in the morning. Though, she says you do see plants come back from the brink. Like Henry David Thoreau before her, Elizabeth Farnsworth has faith in a seed. Coming up, New England's finest jerk. It's next.
5: Next is
6: made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness.
2: This is Next. I'm Jill Kaufman, in for John Dankosky. Jamaicans celebrated the 55th anniversary of their independence from Great Britain earlier this month. Hartford, Connecticut, enjoys a whole week of celebrations every summer involving immigrants from across the Caribbean. Next producer, Andrea Maraskin, went down to the city's waterfront for the kickoff event, the 12th annual Taste of the Caribbean and Jerk Fest. She sends this audio postcard.
5: Okay, my name is Donovan Longmore. I'm one of the board members and the host and one of the promoters for the Jerk Festival. Well, jerk in the Caribbean is a spice. Uh, Most of the things that they jerk is meat, especially they jerk fish, they jerk chicken, they jerk goat, they jerk um, pork. When you have something that's jerked, it's not something you just season right then and there and cook. You have to let it sit for, you know, a day or two and then it marinates in and then you can start cook it. That's how you get the authentic taste and the authentic flavor that's in it and that's what makes it so good. <laughs>
3: I love Jamaican food, I love smelling it and just being around it and going home and smelling my hair. It's just very unique to Hartford because we have such a strong like, Jamaican culture here, so it's just like an opportunity to come and like see the different restaurants, so it just brings people together. It's a good place to be. Wow. <laughs> you like the smell of food in your hair. No, jerk food in my hair. Not any food, like uh, this food in my hair. It's very specific.
2: Maybe we can talk
0: a little bit about Caribbean music, because I think most people have heard of reggae. But what are the other types of music that
2: you could hear at a at a part at a festival like this?
5: Okay, at a festival like this, reggae is a big, broad avenue of, of genre. But at the same time you have different sub-genres in the music itself. You have reggae in every island, and you have soca in every island, and you have calypso.
0: What is soca music? How do you describe it? Okay,
5: soca music is a more up-tempo, fastest type of Caribbean music. It has a lot of gyration in it because it's so fast. Hector Rodriguez, and the band is called Los Calientes, which means in Spanish, uh, the Hot Ones. I'm the bass player, and the, the music we play is uh, salsa. Uh, this us. is the singer here, Carlito. Hello. Nice to meet nice, you.
0: Nice to meet you too. So what were you singing about?
5: We were talking about el raton, which means the, the, the rat. It's fun, it's fun. The yeah, whole story, yeah, I, they, they, he,
6: gotta, he gotta get away from that rat because he's gonna, he gonna snitch you, and, and you're gonna have
1: a big problem with your with your girl, with your wife.
3: Do you think the food here is as good as the food back home in Jamaica?
5: Well, it's it delicious, same way. Cause we got Jamaican, we got Cuban, we got Puerto Rican food, all different type of food, finger licking. <laughs> Ain't that nice, you know? So just come out and enjoy it, you know, and have fun. No fight, just enjoy yourself.
2: That's next producer, Andrea Moraskin reporting from the 12th annual Taste of the Caribbean and Jerkfest in Hartford, Connecticut. Last Sunday in Peterborough, New Hampshire, the renowned McDowell Artist Colony opened its gates to the public. This event happens once a year, and it is a big deal for hundreds of outsiders who come here to wander the fields and woods and meet the 30 or so poets, composers, painters, dancers, architects. They are artists in residence tucked away in simple, sufficient studios for a few weeks in near obscurity. Today is also the McDowell's annual medal day. And before the hoi polloi get their rare moment, the well-known American novelist Michael Chabon takes the stage under a big white tent to speak about the recipient of this year's medal, filmmaker David Lynch, who is well-known among a certain crowd for the surreal Eraserhead and Blue Velvet and for the cult TV series, Twin Peaks.
1: We call the people who remind us to open our eyes, artists. At McDowell, we like to feed them (laughs) and shelter them and make sure their chairs are comfy and their light is adequate and their beds are soft enough for dreaming. Every year, we give one of them a medal and this year that medal is going to an artist who has been opening our eyes and
2: Lynch was not on stage. He was, stage. was on vacation, but he joined the crowd by video Rolling and it was a very Lynchian action. greeting.
5: Thank you,
0: Gru
5: Gru 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 It is a real blessing to be on your list of great artists you have honored through the years.
2: Many McDowell Fellows create brilliant work, and you've never heard of them. Others are well-known. Leonard Bernstein began writing his 1971 composition, Mass, while here. In the 1970s at McDowell, Alice Walker worked on her first book, Meridian. In the 1950s, James Baldwin wrote Giovanni's Room. Michael Chabon was himself a McDowell Fellow several times over. His most recent book is Moonglow, and he wrote his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay while in residency. Sitting in the library, not too far from the crowd, he spoke about what makes this artist's retreat unique. He says there's a very New England preoccupation with mortality and death.
1: That goes, of course, right back to the first um, European settlers to come here. Um, You know, the Puritans, this idea of like you, you know, memento mori, Uh, remember that you will die, that, you know, life is fleeting. Make the most of it and have the proper perspective on what really matters Um, and don't waste time on the frivolities of the world and, and, and do your work you know work is in some sense the purpose of life and I see that in all kinds of ways it's not just the Puritans I mean you see the presence of death in, like you know Emily Dickinson's poetry uh in the Pixies um in I mean the band the Pixies um in Frank Black's work and um and Thornton Wilder I mean Peterborough became the town and our town and that work was written here at the McDowell Colony.
6: Are there any other questions?
2: Oh, Mr. Webb, is there any culture or love of beauty in Grover's Corners?
6: Well, ma'am, there ain't much. Not in the sense you mean. Well, come to think of it, there's some girls who play the piano at high school commencement. But they ain't happy about it. No, ma'am, there isn't much culture. But, but maybe this is the place to tell you that we've got a lot of pleasures of a kind here. We like the sun coming up over the mountain in the morning. And we all
1: notice In every studio there are these plaques on the walls. Some of them are just rectangles. Some of them are, uh, have a sort of chevron at the top. Um, they're sort of a piece of plain varnished wood and they're ruled with lines and has the name of the studio at the top of each one and then you just add your name to it and the dates and you put your discipline, writer, painter, whatever. And those are called tombstones. And you look at the ones that stretch back now in the oldest studios to 1907, 1908, 1910, 1912, and you look at these names, and many of them are like tombstones in old New England churchyards. The names are effaced, and the name has faded. You can't really even tell who it was anymore. And the ones that you can see, which is the bulk of them, many of them have been forgotten. Even as you do your work, there's this constant reminder of its ephemerality, that you're not doing it for fame you're not, not doing it to be remembered because look at all of these people who each of them came here and they did their work. You're doing it because, you know, in that sort of New England sort of primal sense, you're doing it because that's what you're here to do is your work. It's the purpose of life.
2: Writer Michael Chabon at the McDowell Colony in Peterborough, New Hampshire.
5: I just want the peace and love and happiness. I'm hoping I can ride this
2: and this is the work of a current fellow. This summer, Elliot Williams is at McDowell working on his second album. You may not have heard of him. Yet.
5: I'ma get this my best stuff. Best of. Feel like I know my guy. Think I just found my guy. Feel like I know my guy. Yeah. Met a stranger at a liquor store. Inviting me to kick it with her. Later.
4: Yeah, it was actually a safe way, but
5: we'll go with the store. She a lawyer here in Cali, but a daddy from the shy. Robert Taylor.
2: Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tularsky. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR, Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. I'm Jill Kaufman, in for John Dankosky. Thanks for listening.